Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So tell us, let's just dive right in. Why separation anxiety? Why is this your special interest area? Oh, such a funny question. Uh, and I, I've been asked this before, and I typically say it chose me versus me <laughs> using it. Uh, you know, I think had someone told me when I was first starting out in my doctor training career that like separation anxiety is calling your name, I would have run as quickly as I could in the opposite direction. But I love it now. I love it even more now than I did five years ago and even more than I did 10 years ago and, and plenty more than I did 20 years ago when I first started. And um it is, I'm, I'm so hooked and I'm so passionate about it. But I, I think in, in a little bit more specific answer to your question, one of the very first clients that I ever had was a separation anxiety client. And what hooked me was the fact that she had called and she said, you know, hi, and uh, my name is such and such. And um, my dog is experiencing some separation anxiety. And I listened and I, you know, for a few minutes and then I said, gosh, you know, I'm so sorry to hear what you're going through. I'd like to give you to give you a few referrals for two other trainers that could help you. And uh, I want you to know I'm, I'm pretty green as a trainer and I think you'd be better served by a more experienced trainer. She burst into tears and just said, I understand, but... If you could make sure that the names you give me are people that will help with separation anxiety, that would be great because you're the seventh trainer that I've spoken to. Wow. And my heart just broke because I thought, yeah, I'm going to give her two or three names and they're all going to say, I don't do separation anxiety. I knew it. I knew it. And uh, that was sort of the beginning of the end. I told her very, very honestly, I was totally transparent about the fact that this would be my first separation anxiety case and that we may be literally learning together. But if she was willing to, that I would work with her. And um, that's how it all started. And, and kind of funny side note to that, I, I remember this dog so well. His name was Guinness. And we rocked it. He did brilliantly with his protocol. And for a while I was like, mm -hmm, check me out. I did it. I did it. <laughs> and, um, then of course the very second separation anxiety case that I ever took like crashed and burned. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm not such hot stuff. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but I had sort of sealed the deal there because as soon as people found out in the, I live in the San Francisco Bay area and it's a, it's a pretty tight dog training community. And as soon as people found out that I had done well with this case and that I was sort of interested, 
the referrals just started flooding in because nobody wanted to do separation anxiety at that time in particular. But one of the reasons that I feel that um, a lot of dog professionals sort of shy away from separation anxiety is that there's not particularly good, concrete, evidence-based material out there that directs people exactly in, you know, how to work with it. And there's a lot of bits and pieces out there, some of them, you know, contradicting each other, but there's no sort of seminal discussion or seminal work that uh, says this is this is what we know to be best practices. And and on, on that note, even the ideological side of things, like we don't even know exactly what causes separation anxiety. So there's a lot of ambiguity that surrounds separation anxiety. And one of my biggest goals is to, you know, keep it from being the redheaded stepchild, right? Absolutely. And I think that just just in the short time that I've been aware of um, your work and what you're doing, I have felt like, oh, you know, finally somebody is making this accessible for not only the guardians of the dogs to get help, but for the people in the field. Because I, you're right, it's actually a huge niche that <laughs> trainers would be smart to be filling, but they're too scared of it to fill it because nobody's got, you know, really good answers and they, the cases can be really scary because it, it can really be um, just this enormous quality of life concern for both the dog and the person Absolutely. involved. Yeah. So they, they scare people. And I think that what your company is doing and the way that it's working with clients is really revolutionary. So can you tell me, um, tell all of us how that works? Absolutely. You know, one thing that changed, and I think this has changed the industry on the whole, but it certainly has changed things with regard to separation anxiety. Uh, in the past 10 years, uh, maybe a little earlier than that, but we weren't all that great with it at the time, technology has really transformed our ability to work effectively with separation anxiety. And I mean, a little side backstory is when I first started back in the day with that first dog and with some of the other dogs that I worked with, you know, in the beginning, I would trek myself over to the person's house carrying my eight millimeter video camera, you know, the 30 pound <laughs> yes. thing that it was. Yes. yes, that's totally aging me, by the way. For all of you youngsters, you're like, what is an eight millimeter video camera? Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I would, you know, haul that thing into my client's house and I'd say, okay, here's some tapes. I want you to do these things, uh, record uh, all the absence rehearsals that I've given you. And then I'll be back at the end of the week and I'll pick up the tapes and I would bring them home and I would review them. And then we would meet, you know, within the next few days and we would talk about what they were going to do for the next seven days or 10 days or whatever it was going to be in between our appointments. And really what happened was that we were guessing, we were being very reactive as, a, as opposed to being able to be proactive. 
And oftentimes we were set, we were shooting way too high and sometimes we were shooting a little too low. And so result, you know, talk about results may vary. Um, I mean, it was definitely a process of, you know, it, 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 success rate wasn't great. Uh, I mean, it wasn't awful and it was certainly a lot better than some of the, you know, just um, give them a Kong and stick them in a crate kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, but, it, you know, we, we, we struggled, uh, and then I took a case about 10 years ago, um, that I said, let's, let's mess with this like online thing and between Skype and, um, a, a Ustream, which I don't even know if it's around anymore. And uh, all these different platforms that we tried to piecemeal together, we were able to do, remote viewing of the dog and that changed everything because what we were able to do is exit the door or wherever we were in the protocol uh and say okay you're gonna stay out for whatever duration you know three minutes or whatever it was and both the client and i could watch and see how the dog was handling in the moment, as opposed to let's watch the videotape three days later and see what happens. Right. And, um, that changed everything. And so fast forward many years, um, to what we're doing today. And we meet with our clients online once a week and do a live assessment and discussion with the client. And then the rest of the days per week, about five, five, sometimes six days a week uh, in total, we have a shared document where we write the client's exercises for the day. We call them missions and, and we tell them exactly what we want them to do in about a 20 minute, maybe 30 minute period and exactly how many steps to take exactly you know this time you walk out the door take your keys this time don't take your keys this time stay out 30 seconds this time only stay out 10 seconds etc etc and um all based on the individual dog and then at the end of the day when the client finishes their exercises they write some notes into the document that explains to us in detail how the dog did with all of those individualized exercises. And based on their notes, they get a very brand new, tailored to them and their dog set of exercises for the next day. So it's a pretty intense process. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it needs to be. I mean, it really, I think that, you know, and I feel that way about most, um, most behavior modification work actually is that you have to dive in, you have to, you know, it's, it's work, it's work for kind of everybody involved. And if you can't observe the behavior itself, you don't really have any hope to modify it. So of course, this technology has allowed you guys to have enormous success. And I think what's, what's really, really cool is that means that it's accessible. It doesn't matter where you live. All you need is internet connection and you can have access to one of your uh, certified trainers. I know you've got a, certif a certification process and, you know, these people can actually help 
these individuals. And it's just, I think that for so long, we kind of thought of this as an issue that we were all just going to have to manage for the rest of the dog's life. Um, And I'm not saying that management isn't going to be part of anybody's kind of lifelong plan because it it probably is for most behaviors that we're trying to change. But talk to me about, just kind of talk to me about the success rate because you've obviously not built this business on you know, mountains of failure, (laughs) Um, you know, and I think that, I think that trainers, um, trainers are so afraid of it because they don't think they're going to get through it. They don't think that um, this is actually treatable, but it's actually quite treatable is my understanding in most cases. So talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. I'm so glad that you asked this because sort of standing around the, you know, proverbial water cooler, or I guess in our case, the, you know, the dog park or whatever, um, uh, (laughs) you know, um, you know, the, the, the common thought, both in the professional world, as well as the average client, average guardian, uh, are like, ooh, your dog has separation anxiety. Wow, that's a bummer because there's nothing to do with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, my husband, interestingly enough, just came home uh, uh, shortly ago and he said, oh my gosh, I gave this girl at work your number and she went to uh, um, her vet and talked to them about the fact that the dog has separation anxiety and the vet the vet told her. No disrespect to vets, by the way, it just was it just happened to be the situation that you know happened today but and her vet said oh there's nothing that you can do about that uh and and it breaks my heart (laughs) yeah i know it breaks my heart to hear anybody say that because i know how fixable the problem is and we yes insofar as success you're right i mean we have been able to work with hundreds and hundreds of clients and realize tremendous success with them and I think one of the reasons that trainers uh, and just dog professionals in general still remain, you know, quite filled with trepidation about separation anxiety is it's hard to fathom that you're going to work in such small increments. And so it is really a matter of appropriately setting the client's expectations to realize, wow, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. It's a journey. And sure, you know, we are going to make progress, but this does not mean that two weeks from now, you're going to be able to pick up your dancing shoes and uh, go out for the evening. Um, You know, this is going to take time. And a lot of us, you know, dog trainers are, worried about those really long-term cases. But the thing that, you know, sort of going back to that technology piece, the thing that I think made such a difference is the old model uh, for all behavior modification really was I'll meet with you on, you know, Saturday and tell you what to do. And then, you know, a week from now or two weeks from now, I'll meet up with you and check in and see how you're doing and we'll go from there. And I can tell you, that ain't going to work with separation anxiety because <laughs> there's just far too much leeway for either the client to, you know, push too hard or not push enough. 
or the dog starts to get concerned about a particular pre-departure cue or trigger or something that we didn't uh, have yet to, we had yet to incorporate and somehow that gets incorporated. I mean, like so much can go wrong in seven to 10 days. And we, and the amount of motivation, commitment and accountability that comes with working with the clients as regularly as we do changes the entire picture of how these cases uh, end up because we can keep them on track and we can keep the dog on track and we can keep them motivated and accountable and, you know, cheerlead with our, with our pom-poms when we have to, and, you know, sit in, in sad solidarity when it's a moment that's frustrating and that's okay. That's all part of the process. So I do understand why trainers uh, a lot have yet to understand that, you know, there's so much potential. This is such a fixable issue. Um, but yes, it will take time. And yes, it will take commitment from both the professional and the client. Um, but man, I gotta tell you, Sarah, it is, I mean, I almost am going to start crying. And every time I say this, I think this, you know, how lucky I am. There is nothing like impacting the life of a dog and the person that loves them in this way and being able to give them their lives back. It's really profound. It's very profound. Um, I were, I, I don't work in separation anxiety, but I do work in behavior change. And a lot of the things that you're saying to me resonate with all behavior change protocols. I think that the, the old days of, yeah, I meet with you on Saturday and then I see you again, you know, in a couple of weeks, or maybe we, we meet once a week for six weeks in a group setting or, you know, like so many things I think could shift in our industry to help people, to help people better, to just kind of think outside the box and say, what does this, what does this behavior problem actually require for us to get to the other side of it? Um, And then actually doing what it requires, which is the way that you've kind of built, you've built, um, your your company and your business and and taught these trainers this way to kind of say this is what we know is that it needs to be individualized these people are going to need a lot of help they're going to need emotional support and this is how we do it for them and then being very clear about it not being not being a sprint and definitely being a marathon it's one of those what's one of those things the analogy that i usually use is it's like it's like grass growing you don't see it growing but you see that it has grown <laughs> in a few yes. weeks or, you know, et cetera. And I think that separation anxiety qualifies for sure. And a lot of the behavior issues that I work on are like that too. Um, you know, real, real dog training, real behavior change, usually not theatrical, usually not, <laughs> you know, usually not really super not. fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. Really not. My favorite thing <laughs> that we all say with the CSATs is, Oh my God, this was the most boring day ever. I'm so excited because it's true. (laughs) That's what we want. We want the process to, I mean, boring is, you know, the right word. It's when you see behavior change, it is not an exciting process. Like you said, it's like watching grass grow or watching paint dry. I mean, Mm -hmm. but the outcome is. The outcome is the exciting part. Yeah. 
that keeps you going for sure. Um, you had mentioned that we're not really sure why separation anxiety develops. Um, do you have any thoughts on on why or maybe preventative measures that we can take? Or is that um, part of any of the research that you're involved in? So, uh, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I got all three of those there. Excellent, uh, excellent. Um, but, um, okay, starting with the why, um, there's some fascinating research right now that, um, and by the way, if any of you that are listening are geneticists, I'm going to say all these things wrong. So I'm just telling you right up front. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Because <laughs> I've been reading all these studies and I'm like, I mean, I, I'm truly having to look up every other word in some of these studies. I'm just so lost, but it's fascinating and, uh, and interesting work. So just like they have found the genetic marker for a variety of different types of issues, behavioral, physical, etc. cetera, uh, an example would be when they looked at the... Uh, oh, that uh, uh, bull, uh, bull terriers that do that spin, they were mm-hmm. able to locate the genetic marker that is passed on that is the sort of trigger for that spinning behavior. Um, wow. Same with Dobermans with flank sucking. And so these have all been very breed specific, but they have others that are not breed specific. Uh, and it's not that much difference, although I want to caveat this and say I don't know anything about human medication or human uh, um, conditions, but uh, I liken it to the fact that, you know, as of fairly recent in history, we've found the marker that says you may have a predisposition to Alzheimer's, right? And people can actually test for that now. So they now have found the associated, and here's the word that I'm going to say wrong, haplotype, or is it halplotype? I think I'm going to, I think they're both, I think I'm saying it wrong. I think, both, both. I think you said it right the first time. Yeah. I, I think. Th- I, yeah. It's <laughs> I, I remember looking at the word thinking, I don't think it's pronounced the way it's spelled. But anyway, if you guys know what I'm talking about, great. If you don't, then you'll never know that I said it wrong. Anyway. Exactly. <laughs> 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 uh, but in other words, the genetic marker uh, that would be uh, potentially associated with separation anxiety. And what is so exciting about that to me, it, well, it's twofold. Number one, there are, and this happens with a lot of behaviors, and Sarah, I bet you know this from a, a lot of the behavior modification that you do, but there's a tremendous amount of owner blaming that goes on. And I don't oh, think gosh, it's yes. been in, Right. And I don't think it's really intentional per se, but people are like, well, you probably didn't socialize your puppy very well. That's why your dog is afraid of strangers or whatever. And um, certainly socialization and and integrating um, appropriate training in, in, you know, in the young dog or, or early on is important. But there's a lot of factors that are that are at play when behaviors develop. And it's not just, oh, you're a bad mom, you didn't do it right. It's not. As a matter of fact, there are the majority of things, when we're talking specifically separation anxiety, the majority of things that people say that 
uh, are the contributing factors like, oh, you let your dog sleep in your bed and you coddle them too much, et cetera, et cetera. Those, while we don't exactly know the cause, we have figured out that those do not cause separation anxiety, which I think is really profound for people to understand. I also, um, you know, think that we've got a lot of, there's a lot of epigenetics involved um, in the sense of, you know, when the, the separation anxiety might occur, occur uh, and we're just finding out more and more. So when it comes over to the prevention side, um, I personally, and maybe it's just too nuanced to, you know, maybe I'm being petty, but I personally like to, to say, you know, you don't prevent separation anxiety or many other behavior issues for that matter. You optimize the dog's potential for success in that arena. Because I that's the it. best yeah. we can do, don't you think? I think so. And I, I really think that the the kind of owner blaming stuff, I just feel like it's self-protective. I think of if course. people, right, if people can can point out what you did wrong, then it protects them, right, from, from this happening to them. And I've been guilty of that for sure. Um, and I, I think we all are. I think it's kind of natural for us to say, well, well, you did this wrong and that's why this is happening to you. And so if I just don't do that, then it won't happen to me. That's right. Um, I think it's true of most behavior problems. And I'm really, really happy that you said that coddling and, you know, having the dog sleep in your bed and all of that, that we know that that's not a contributing factor because I think that's been a misconception that's gone on for way too long. I agree. And if that were true, then every single one of my dogs would have separation anxiety. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, the percentage of dogs in the U.S. alone that have separation anxiety is actually pretty high. But it would be like quadruple that if if everybody that it, it you know, they studied funny things like people that talk to their dogs as if they're humans or babies or children, you know, and does that poorly. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, thank God it doesn't because I'd be sunk. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think I could change, even if it were true. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, well, I think that's so fascinating. Oh, and the genetics are so, so interesting. So what so and I love talking about um, rather than prevention, kind of optimizing success. What are what are some specifics there as far as how people can really just kind of support the behaviors that they would like to be seeing from the beginning um, in an effort to kind of help, you know, maybe help avoid the issue or at least help the dog have um, some of those skills that we, that we want them to have that we think of as kind of counter to separation anxiety. Right. So <clears throat> what's interesting, particularly when we're talking about puppies, but even a new dog to the household that is not a puppy, um, you know, there's still, which surprises me, but there's still to this day and age, the, oh, it's just a puppy, let him cry, he'll get over it. And, yep. uh, and, and even, even true of, you know, new dogs into the home. And we have a fair amount of research that says a leaving an animal, and I specifically say animal, not just dog, but that includes humans and other social species, uh, leaving an animal in a state of distress 
actually has some pretty severe consequences. That doesn't mean that it doesn't work sometimes. And when I say work, it doesn't mean that the dog eventually doesn't maybe give up or the human or the, or, or what have you. But, um, but that doesn't mean that the just that the distress that they were experiencing and potentially continue to experience has not had, um, pretty dire consequences, both physiologically and psychologically. And so I think when we bring a new dog home, puppy or, or adult, it's our job to teach them that it's a safe environment. And some dogs, yeah, you know, you teach them that I'm going to leave and go to the you know, mailbox or take out the recycling for five or 10 minutes or whatever. And they're like, oh, no big deal. And so, you know, before you know it, you're gone for, you know, a half a day or a work day or whatever. Um, other dogs are going to need to move more gradually. And we're an ego, we need to sort of ensure to them that, okay, you know, I know five minutes is pretty big stuff for you. So we're going to hover around the three minute mark until you're ready for the five minute mark. And so in essence, it comes down to almost, I guess you could say like a modified separation anxiety protocol for those dogs that are a little concerned about absences. And um, we just have to always remember to move at the pace that the dog sets. So it is not, there's no formulaic answer to, we'll start at five minutes, then go to 10 minutes, then go to 15. That, that just is not in existence. And we see that out there a lot. And we see people trying to automate the process. Like, oh, if you, you know, if you do this today, then tomorrow you can do that. And, and, but that, but dogs, and all social beings are individualistic. So for one dog, a 30 second absence could be 30 seconds of sheer terror. Uh, and for another dog, they're like, ah, I'm good for five minutes, you know, yeah, but I don't really like 10. And, 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 you know, other dogs are like, you know, just make sure you come home and let me out to pee once in a while and I'm good. So, I mean, we've, we've got to take that into consideration when working with dogs. And so I think, insofar as optimizing a dog for success in alone time, it really is about giving them the time and the space to acclimate and understand that the environment is safe. And I am a big believer of keeping our dogs safe from harm and from fear and from distress. And, um, you know, that it's, it's almost to me, like we owe that to them. They give us so much. We owe it to them to not have them be in a situation where they feel impending threat of some sort. Excellent. I, I love it. And I, I teach, um, a workshop I call happy crating. That's essentially what you're talking about. It's saying how long can the dog actually be happy in the crate, comfortable in the crate? Yeah. And that is where, you know, you don't get to start beyond that. And I think that we just, I think with puppies, especially we get away with it a lot more than we do with adult dogs. Um, 
by just kind of but putting Sarah, them in crate and letting them figure it out. Yeah. But would you agree yeah. with the fact that we get away with it, but that doesn't mean we should, right? 100%. 100%. I, you know, I talk, this is actually a part two um, episode because in part one, I talked about my own dog, Iggy, who is the dog that I consulted your company for. Um because when I got her as a puppy, she did not fit the script. She was yeah. an eight-week-old who screamed and screamed and, I mean, was really, really distressed in the crate right away. As soon as I got her home, was very distressed. And, you know, all of my dog friends and all of my colleagues were like, oh, you know, puppies, they scream in the crate. Yeah. <laughs> and And I look back and, you know... I have to have some self-compassion and understand that we do better when we know better, but it does break my heart a little bit that she was in distress and that I didn't step in and help her not be in distress because it's it's completely up to us to not, you know, we rip them away from their mom and their siblings and then we put them in a box and we, it's actually miraculous that most dogs don't develop separation anxiety. It really is, huh? Yeah, it is miraculous. It's just kind of a further testament to how amazing they are and that we should not really, we shouldn't be taking advantage of how amazing they are. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And and I got to tell you, whether you were intending to devote this, um, you know, this time, this podcast to your dog or not, I hope you know this is paying tribute to the fact that you know that from this point forward, you you will protect dogs from having to deal with some of the distress that she dealt with. And that, you know, as you said, when we know better, we do better. And, and you were doing exactly the right thing at the time for what you and others knew to do. Um, so this is so in her in her behalf, right? It absolutely is, definitely. And every time... You know, every time I have a client, I do have a lot of clients whose dogs have kind of crate distress to a varying degree, mostly because um, my clients are in the performance world, primarily in the agility world. And we tend to kind of throw dogs in crates in the agility environment, which is <laughs> insane and intense. And and then we expect them to be calm in there. <laughs> and it's really, really a lot to ask. Um, and so I do you know, think about what I, what I learned from her because she was not going to be a dog that was just going to kind of tolerate that. Um, and I am grateful for it. So I've got a couple of Patreon questions that I'm going to ask you to end our interview with. So the first one is, um, and this, this, this one came in various forms. So every kind of everybody wants to know the answer to this, which is how do you tell the difference between actual, quote unquote, actual separation anxiety and the dog. Um, and I think I know what you're going to say. And I, I'm so happy that I'm asking you this. Um, how do you tell the difference between, you know, kind of the real deal separation anxiety and a dog that just doesn't want to be in the crate or is just complaining about not being in the crate? Or a lot of people talk about this phrase FOMO, fear of missing out, but the dog is actually just upset that there are better things happening outside of the crate. How do we know the difference between what we might call separation anxiety and then what we might call, you know, I guess just kind of fussing and being upset <laughs> about right. being in the crate? Right. <clears throat> um, yeah, I'm really glad you asked this question also. And yes, I think I 
<clears throat> I've already alluded to what my answer is probably going to be, but <clears throat> the first thing before I even answer it directly in in the second piece, I, I want to say confinement anxiety or create anxiety or, you know, however we want to talk about it, or even let's say create fussiness or confinement fussiness um, uh, is is really common, both in separation anxiety dogs and in non-separation anxiety dogs. And it's very surprising the number of people that call us and say, oh my gosh, my dog has terrible separation anxiety. And every time I put him in the crate, he's like, doesn't want to go in. And and then he cries and he pulls on the bars and he scratches at the, you know, at the door and so on and so forth inside the crate. And we'll say, okay, uh, let's do a couple of assessments. Let's assess him. And we have some really fascinating video in this regard too, um, cause we've done this so many times now, um, where we video the dog in the crate and then we say, now we're going to have the dog outside the crate. We'll have the crate open and available for the dog. Uh, and as you and many other people might be thinking, well, I don't want to leave the dog out of the crate because they might get into something or they might destroy something or they might, you know, pee or whatever. However, if, if the dog is experiencing crate anxiety or confinement anxiety, we're really exacerbating a problem or potentially even having a problem that doesn't really exist. And oftentimes the difference between our, here's your dog today in the crate alone for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever, when we video, and here's the dog alone a day or two or three later outside of the crate, just for assessment purposes, the difference between those two videos is sometimes night and day. So ruling out whether it's confinement anxiety or not, I think is really important for whether you're, whether you're worried about separation anxiety or you're worried about FOMO, you want to rule out if it's just in the confined area that this is um, mostly occurring. Beyond that, I personally feel, and yes, this is maybe my bias, but I feel that even if it's not clinical separation anxiety, even if it's not the, you know, highest pinnacle of distress, distress is distress, frustration, distress, uh, you know, anxiety, panic, they all are some, they can be somewhat intermingled. <clears throat> and even if <clears throat> dogs had the ability to have a level of FOMO that I think we're we're sort of imposing on them. I'm not even sure about that, but even if they did, what can often happen when you have a dog that is frustrated uh, is that you know they're frustrated for a minute or two, and then they become distressed. So even if it started out as frustration, it can bleed very quickly into uh, a situation of of an anxious and distressed dog. Um, if you've got a dog that, you know, technically you're thinking has FOMO, he, you know, whines for, for 30 seconds and then he goes, 
and falls asleep, okay, that might be something different. But but that's not what typically people are calling us about, right? Uh, so I think that if a dog is experiencing what appears to be some level of something that's producing vocalization and fussiness and vigilance and uh, you know, pulling at the uh, bars of the confinement area and those sorts of things. It is, it is, you know, our job to first rule out whether that's completely confinement related or not. Uh, and then once we know the answer to that, to address that issue and make whichever environment that the dog will be in the safest, most positive environment possible. So it almost goes back to the optimizing for success. We have to go backwards and say, okay, so for instance, a lot of our separation anxiety dogs will be, will say, my goodness, your dog was really a lot more upset in the crate than they were outside of the crate. So we'll work a protocol with the crate door open while you're, you know, while we get the dog acclimated to being alone and we can work on crate training as a separate adjunct that doesn't have to do with alone time right now. Um, I know for you guys in sports and I'm not in sports. I, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not smart enough for that. Um, but, uh, but you know, I know how important it is to, say we're going to run you know we're going to run this agility course and then i've got to get my other dog on the course so you got to go in the crate so i understand that but i really think it is important for us to say let's look at the overall welfare of the dog and make sure that we are putting our time towards ensuring that again that safety uh, and so finding ways to, I love it that you're teaching a class, you know, about crate training and that you're getting that message out, but finding ways to make it comfortable for the dog um, is important. I think so. I think that with these questions, um, it implies that perhaps, you know, one variety of distress is not deserving of the kind of attention and care that the other variety of distress is. That's right. And I think that's just kind of a fallacy that if they are in distress, then it is up to us to help them. And I mean, my sister had a dog that did not have separation anxiety, but certainly would panic in a crate. And he wasn't a sport dog. He was a pet dog. And the second that she figured out that just leaving him out of the crate was the answer. I mean, everybody's life got so much better. <laughs> yes, <laughs> That was a very long time ago. Um probably like 20 years ago. And he, you know, he just, he just didn't want to be in the crate. That was it. He just didn't, you know, and so for the sport clients, these dogs have to be comfortable in being crated. And that's why it's important to just put your money in that bank and just really, really work on it. Um, but absolutely, if they're comfortable just being, I think so many dogs, as soon as you take down the barrier, it's like that meme of like the dogs where they're ones on either side of a gate and the gate is kind of slowly sliding open yes. and they're fighting and fighting and fighting until the gate is gone and then they're fine. They're like, oh, <laughs> hey, what's up? <laughs> yes. yes. So, so, so important to kind of manipulate the environment and see, see where the behavior, you know, survives the manipulation or actually just goes away with the manipulation. I think that's important. So one Let's see. One more um, just very interesting, I think, Patreon question is, 
Do you see separation anxiety experience resurgence? So if you, let's say you go through and you go through the modification process and the dog is much better, does it ever come back with, um, say, a move or maybe just age? Um, you know, do, do you see it show back up just because of things that happen in life? Um, so I want to say that the answer to the question, if I had to, you know, give you a one word answer, which thank goodness I don't. But if I did, I would say, yes, we do see resurgence in large life change situations. Not always. My do- my own dog is a perfect example of that. She's a separation anxiety recovered dog. We bought a new home, moved to our new home. I mean, I did give her some time to adjust to the new home, but pretty much she was like, Meh, it's all good here, just like it was at the other place that once I got over it. Um, but, but, but a lot of dogs change a large change in routine and, oh, I have to make sure I describe routine in a moment just to be clear on that. A large change in sort of life change, um, can trigger the problem to, um, to, to resurface. The good news is we have really carefully taught them the quote unquote game of learning how to uh, do well with alone time and that the environment is safe, etc. So when we change environments, for instance, as in the case of moving, I'll, I'll mention geriatrics a little in a second, uh, in the case of moving or, you know, split up with your partner or the kids go off to college or whatever, some large life change. All it really requires is going back to, hey, Fluffy, you know, remember that game that we used to play where everything was safe? We're going to play that game again for a little bit. And then they just resettle into whatever the new change is. But some dogs need help with those large changes. Uh, and, and I think that's okay. You know, I, I, I we look at human um, behavior issues such as anxiety and depression and And we know that, you know, you can go to counseling and do personal modification and uh, on your own uh, depressive issues and and anxiety issues. But, you know, and and be fine, be great. But a year or two or 10 or whatever, something could trigger that resurgence. Uh, And this is what I do find interesting about the genetics and epigenetics of this, because there's a possibility based on what I'm seeing in the research that there is a predisposition from a genetic standpoint of lots of different types of fears, but separation anxiety being one of them. And so it would make sense that like the dog could learn to uh, be, be okay. But remember dogs don't generalize well. So if we really upset the apple cart, it's not surprising that it would be hard to go from, you know, this apartment to that house or this house to that apartment or what have you. So, so we do see that. And so far as the, uh, the geriatrics, so, or just age in general, um, a lot, a lot of what we're seeing is that dogs can get more sensitive in age, but this is another thing where the etiology isn't always so clear. Uh, Sometimes dogs become more sensitive with age because they are also now starting to experience pain-related issues, 
some mm-hmm. hearing loss, some vision loss, things like that. And sometimes it can be related to some cognitive decline, even if that cognitive decline is not, you know, quick and severe. Um, so we have to watch, I mean, at every stage of our dog's lives, there's going to be changes and environmental influencers and, you know, how can we best keep that dog safe as we make those changes? And I always say like, wouldn't you rather, let's say in the case of moving from a, from one place to another, wouldn't you rather take a week or two or however long it's going to take, you know, in that respect to just get your dog feeling super comfy, safe and happy in the new environment versus finding out two months from now because your neighbors are complaining and they want to evict you, you know, and then you're like, <laughs> yes. oh, great. My dog's been freaking out now for two months and now I got to fix it and I have to keep my neighbors happy or my landlord or whatever. Right. So, so I, I think that's important. Um, having said all of that, because that question was was somewhat specific, we don't see it happen very often that a dog has a resurgence of separation anxiety for, quote unquote, no particular reason, right? So there, there seems to always be some sort of precipitating event or age-related onset, um, pain, hearing, vision loss, things like that, uh, that cause it to pop back up. Uh, you know, I, I, it feels to me, and I don't, I don't have the evidence that supports this at this time, but it feels to me with the, with so many clients that I've worked with that, you know, once they learn to ride that bike, they don't fall down anymore. They just don't. They just don't, uh, unless somebody suddenly, you know, removes a tire and there you go. Uh, <laughs> yes. so, yeah. You know, there's one other thing I, uh, you were mentioning when we, when you asked me that last question that I, if, if we have time, I don't know if we're, we're in a bit of a rush here, but if we have time, I'd love to mention something about it. No, please go ahead. Okay. You know, you were saying that, um, And it totally triggered my brain when you said, oh, you know, the implication here is that some people feel like maybe the different types of distress or frustration or that we we sort of try or do categorize them as though, well, one really needs this specified attention and one may not. Um, And and I remember, and I'm probably going to quote this totally wrong, but... um, I was reading in a, a, a book recently, not a dog book, believe it or not, I read a non-dog book. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, the author, Lori Gottlieb, was talking about um, there is no hierarchy of pain. And man, that hit me upside the head like a ton of bricks because, you know, have you ever been in sort of a, you know, kvetching kind of group, right? Well, you know, my back is really bugging. Well, yeah, you don't have, <laughs> yeah, I got yeah. it. I got, you know what? My hip is really the worst, you know. And, you know, we all sit here and say that we, our poor situation is the worst. But at the end of the day, like, we're all suffering with something or other, right? And so that nobody is winning any contests for, you've got a little more pain than I do, or you've got a little more anxiety than I do. And I think it's so fascinating that over the last years, we've been watching dogs with separation anxiety that we work with. And, you know, it doesn't seem to be 
in any way, shape, or form relevant, the outward expression of the separation anxiety has no particularly huge bearing on whether that case resolves quickly or slowly or is complicated or not complicated. So people will say, oh, well, your dog only whines and paces a little. It's no big deal. Or conversely, you know, your dog's jumping out third story windows and destroying, you know, doorways. Oh my gosh, you'll never resolve that. And what we're finding is that the outward manifestation that appears to be a level of severity in symptoms is actually not an indicator of whether this is going to resolve quickly or slowly or, or what have you. So, so it comes back to that, you know, there's no hierarchy, there's no trophy for having the most pain or the most anxiety or whatever. It doesn't mean that it gets resolved any quicker or any easier. And sometimes the most mild cases in appearance are the ones that take a really long time. So at the end of the day, we need to say, Distress is distress is distress. Anxiety is anxiety is anxiety. And let's, you know, let's hit that right on the head. Oh, wow. That's not a very positive reinforcement thing to say. Let's, <laughs> I was thinking nails, not dogs. Okay. Let's hit the nail on the head is what I mean. A good nail. Good yeah. nail. Yeah. Good nail. Uh, but, um, but, you know, let, let's really address it from the get go so that we don't have to have that animal experience um, additional whether it's concern or full-blown anxiety, we, we don't want them to have to go through that. I couldn't agree more. And I think that we could chalk this interview up to essentially separation anxiety is not a unicorn. It is the same as all of the other problems that we try to address. You have to let the dog set the pace. And, and it's deserving of our attention and deserving of our help because dogs are deserving of those things. Absolutely. Indeed. I could not agree more. And I'm quoting you on that separation anxiety is not a unicorn. I'm, I'm, I'm stealing it, but I'll give you a <laughs> You do. You do. That would be fantastic. So, Melena, to finish us out, let everybody know where they can find you. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Um, you can find my website at melenademartini.com. Do I need to spell it? Or we will link that. No, we will link that. So you don't need to spell it out. Okay. Uh, And on our website, um, we have a section for for trainers or dog professionals. We also have a section for owners. Um, In the uh, the owners and guardians section, there is an online self-paced course that can help, um, you know, just your average dog owner get started with working with their own dog separation anxiety. Um, but we also have full packages where we work with people individually one-on-one. Uh, on the trainer side of things, you know, we have our uh, separation anxiety certification program, and we're always excited to find new trainers that are interested in working with this disorder, because as we kind of alluded to in the beginning, it's not everybody's cup of tea and that's okay. But for those of you that it is, um, you know, reach out to us because we'd be happy to talk to you. Uh, and then lastly, 
I would say it's not there yet. It's in the works, but pretty soon we'll have a um, shelter and rescue page uh, as we're working on uh, best practices for shelter, for homeless dogs, for shelter rescue dogs with separation anxiety. And myself and a colleague of mine, Casey uh, McGee, will be presenting on that topic. Uh, we have been presenting on that topic for a while, but this year at um PPG Summit and also on their virtual summit, we'll be presenting some of that information. And um, it's a really important component, I think, because it it's hard for a lot of shelter rescues to know exactly how to proceed with a separation anxiety dog. So there's a lot of resources out there. Take advantage of the blog that's on my website. Take advantage of the hundred plus at this point in time, you know, certified separation anxiety uh, trainers that are out there, CSATs as we call them. Uh, and, you know, feel free to reach out to any and all of us so that we can help. Perfect. Thank you so much, Melina. This has been exactly what I think everybody needed to hear about separation anxiety. Wonderful. I'm so happy that I was able to be here. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.